This is an ABC podcast. So the Sporty Fitness Challenge is now in its final week. And you know what? When it comes to fitness, sometimes you just got to dance. Let's start with tapping. You know, you're really using your legs. Um, you do build up a lot of strength. Tapping for an hour, everybody walks out dripping. <laughs> you know, they're really tired and, and they feel elated too because, you know, you've got all the endorphins going and the sound from your feet makes you feel great. So it's kind of like a physical and an emotional high. Now we're going to do a little brush heel step, front up, heel, brush heel step, front up, heel. So join me for a physical and emotional high as I get a tap dancing lesson. Amanda Smith with you. Also ahead, tennis. The US Open this year is going ahead and it's the first major tournament to replace line judges with electronics. There'll be no challenging those calls. First up though, calling out sports trolls. Online abuse, vitriol, even death threats. It's a growing problem on social media everywhere and it's become a big problem in sport. A couple of AFL players have just copped a barrage of abuse and threats over umpiring decisions that went in their favour. And in the NRL, the just-departed coach of the underperforming Brisbane Broncos has been subjected to a concerted online rumour campaign. It's a vicious world out there of anonymous abusers, and it seriously affects the health and well-being of those who are its targets. One of the companies now involved in trying to deal with this is Sport Radar, based in Switzerland. Dean Baston is the global manager of intelligence and investigation services for Sport Radar. Dean, would you say that this is a widespread and growing problem in professional sport? It's certainly a widespread problem and it's growing in terms of publicity with the number of athletes who are choosing to speak out against it. I think it's really raising awareness and providing some insight into the level of the problem. So what is it that you're doing uh, to try to stop it? How, how are you using investigation and intelligence skills and tools? Sport Radar is working in the data and technology space for a long time and supporting different sporting federations globally with investigation and intelligence capabilities. Tracking down trolls and investigating online threats is a lot of the time it's reapplying the methodologies that we use in other areas of investigation to map out an individual's or a troll's digital footprint and really drilling down on who the person is behind an anonymous account. How easy or hard is it to discover who's doing the trolling? It's not a straightforward process. Um, sometimes it can be a straightforward process when a person is using their true online identity. When people are trying to hide their online identity, that's when it becomes a little bit more technical. Um, however, even when somebody takes measures to hide their true identity, they're still leaving traces across their digital footprint, whether it's being linked to other online accounts or common identifiers across multiple platforms. So once you have, say, uh, identified the troll and sort of built a picture of how that individual conducts their, their online abuse, what action 
can then come from this? It depends on the jurisdiction where the trolling is occurring and the laws in that jurisdiction as well. Ultimately, we're aiming to provide the player or tournament organiser with the identities of these trolls so that the players can take action or the event organisers can take action, whether it's reporting the abuse to social media companies or where the threats are of an extreme nature, referring that on to police for further investigation. So we can provide the athlete with information around the location of a troll, so physical location of a troll after identifying their true identity, then they'll be able to know which law enforcement agency to refer this information on to. So give me an example of how you've done this or trialled this so far, Dean. We had some good success with Exco Tennis Tournament, which was held in Germany. We were provided with a, a large number of abusive messages received to, to the players of the tournament, quite a range of abusive messages attacking players, um, race, body shaming, pretty much everything under the sun, uh, straight out racial vilification. And we then examined the accounts that were responsible for making those threats or, or comments, were able to identify the true individuals behind those accounts through a number of various means without going into too much detail and then provide that back to the event organisers who were able to share it with law enforcement. Why do you reckon they do it? You know, the, the anonymous abusers tapping away on their keyboards, what motivates them to deal in this sort of hate in sport? I think there's a number of drivers for it. Often you see that the trolls have some level of investment in a particular performance or, or something. So it might be a disgruntled punter, for example, who has lost their money and as a result is taking it out on the player. So um, it, it could be something as simple as an individual not necessarily agreeing with a particular player trade or new coaching appointment at a particular club. So anytime a troll has some level of investment in the sport, then that's when you see an increased level of trolling. Well, with the cases in the football codes I mentioned earlier, uh, to date, two men have been arrested for allegedly making threats on social media against the AFL player Dylan Grimes. And in the NRL case, the coach Anthony Siebold has now has information gathered by a cybersecurity agency that he can use to take criminal action. To what extent do you reckon will the successful tracking down and possible prosecution of online abusers be a deterrent uh, to others? I think once people realise that, you know, there's no true anonymity on the internet that they might have a, a second thought, people are happy to run their mouth when they don't think there's going to be any repercussions. Uh, when you see cases like the Dylan Grimes incident and the outcome there with police executing search warrants on, on somebody's home address, I think that might be, well, I'm hoping that that's a wake-up call to the internet trolls, that it does have consequences, that there is real outcomes. In a more general sense, what, what else do you reckon uh, sports organisations can and should do to protect and support their athletes and coaches with regard to this kind of online abuse? I think... Um, education around players' own social media awareness. You know, the thing that kind of got us at, at Sport Radar was 
hearing feedback from the athletes that copying this abuse from trolls is part of the course and that that's the reality of being a sports star. If the players can receive kind of additional education around what they need to do when they receive these sorts of threats online, how to report it, who to report it to, to get a positive outcome, I think it will help lessen the individual impact on the players. What about players, athletes just cutting out of social media? You know, if you're a professional sports person, don't be on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. Is that realistic in today's world? I don't think that sports persons should have to do that. The real issue is the trolls and not the players using social media. I don't think warning players away from social media is the right outcome. Yeah. And Dean Baston is the Global Manager of Intelligence and Investigation Services with Sport Radar. Dean, it's been really interesting to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Amanda. In tennis, the first Grand Slam event since the Australian Open back in January is about to get underway, but there are a few things missing from this US Open this year because of you-know-what. One is the number of players who've decided not to attend. Another is that there are no spectators. And also missing, by and large, are the line judges calling the shots in or out. For most matches, the line judges are being replaced by technology, Hawkeye Live, it's called. James Jafford is the boss of Hawkeye in North America, joining us from New York. And James, Explain to me, just briefly, just in summary, what this new version of Hawkeye is and what it does. Hi, Amanda. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Hawkeye Live is effectively the next iteration, calling those lines live rather than putting them up on the screen as a replay. Yeah, so how is this different from how electronic adjudication has come to be used at Grand Slam events up till now? We're still tracking the ball using cameras positioned around the court. In the Hawkeye traditional system, we'd have 10 cameras around the court. We've actually added two cameras just to, to give us a little bit more redundancy. So should anything go awry with any combination of those cameras, we'd still be fully functional. So it, it's an optical tracking system that then links into the PA system and actually to the umpire's chair for a, a little light cube as a, a second indicator. Right. Now, now this, this new system does away then with players being able to or needing to challenge the line person's call that's then reviewed by Hawkeye because this this actually cuts out the middleman, middlewoman. There's no human involved. There's no line judge. That's correct. The call is made through the PA in 0.2, 0.3 of a second, give or take. So you're right. The challenge system as we know it in tennis isn't going to be in place at the US Open. I have to say, James, as a spectator, personally, I love hearing the linesperson's calls, you know, the different tones and emotion in the voice. With with this electronic system, how's the call heard? How, how do you hear it as a spectator, as a, a viewer? Is it like with a net fault, you know, first a beep and then an automated voice? No, we've forgotten the beep, actually. So we've recorded a variety of line judges' calls, whether it be faults or out, and it'll play a particular one based on how far out the ball actually is. So tight calls will have a more strained out call, if you will, than one that's comfortably out. All right. So there is a sort of degree of simulation involved. Yeah, we've tried to get the feel of the game as close as possible, albeit without the actual human element. 
And is it a male voice or a female voice? It's a variety. Actually, depending on, it's been used at a number of tournaments and exhibitions prior to the US Open, and often the tournament itself will record their own voices rather than us putting the wrong accent out. Yes, well, I mean, I understand that at the moment reducing the number of people on the tennis court uh, at a big tournament is a sensible health precaution, but in the longer term, it will do lines people out of a job altogether, won't it? I think ultimately, yes. Um, So the challenging question is always going to be around the line judges and their employment. I mean, we are working very closely with USTA and Tennis Australia and other tennis bodies to try and develop and help educate those interested in going down the route of chair umpire as to how to give them more experience. Because, of course, the traditional route to becoming a chair umpire is to be a line judge. Yeah, and and there are still however many hundred challenger events every year where line judges would still be in use. It would only be at that kind of once you hit that next tier. But look, I mean, it's a fair question to ask. I don't think I'm on many Christmas card lists, but it's just a case of trying to create an opportunity for people elsewhere as and how we can. Well, it's an interesting shift. I mean, um, aside from a global pandemic, James, what, what what would you say is driving the acceptance of increasing use of the likes of Hawkeye in tennis, but also sport in general. I mean, how much is it the advances in the technology as opposed to the desire of the sport to remove doubt? I think both elements play a factor. The technology is certainly evolving and and moving forwards. And what's capable now certainly wasn't capable 25 years ago, 15 years ago. I think ultimately people want sport decided on who the better player was or the better team was rather than a decision that's made in a split second by an official who, whilst everyone at home has a safety net of seeing whether they got it right or wrong, the person in the middle that matters doesn't. So I think people just want to see the right result. Well, Hawkeye was developed in the UK by a guy called Paul Hawkins, and it was originally used in tennis really only for the television coverage to Uh, replay a point and show where the ball landed. Then it was taken up as an actual adjudication review system, as I was saying, as we were saying, when a player challenges a line call. Now with this latest iteration, it has become the arbiter of whether the ball's in or out. How have you been able to demonstrate to the tennis bodies that this would be okay? Yeah, it's been a relatively long process and a well-tested system. I've got to say the ITF, ATP and WTA do a lot of testing of our technology, irrespective of whether it's Hawkeye Live or the more traditional Hawkeye system, and have done every year since it passed. So we're continually tested. But we were first put to our paces in, in Milan at the ATP next gen in 2017. So it's sort of been two and a half years in the making before we hit our first Grand Slam. And what's been the acceptance level with players, spectators, chair umpires so far? So far, the feedback's been positive. The players, I mean, players still naturally try and challenge just because old habits die hard. But players generally have actually accepted the technology and accepted it very quickly in tennis, far more quickly than other sports. Is Hawkeye Live 100% accurate, can you say? Uh, we, we try not to deal with things in percentages. We pass all our testing and it's put in front of us to about two and a half mil of accuracy in terms of how far off we can be as a max error. 
So it's pretty good. And certainly better than the human eye. So are you doing this for all matches, all courts at the US Open? So we're installing the live system across all courts. We're going to be using the traditional system on Arthur Ashe and Louis Armstrong courts and Hawkeye Live on the other 11. Why is that? It's probably a question for USTA. I think there is, firstly, the want that their show courts still have the feel and look of the US Open Grand Slam that everyone's used to, but the other 11 will be Hawkeye Live. And should there be an outbreak, touch wooden, and we're all hoping there won't be, we would be in a position to switch over to Hawkeye Live. Right. Well, if this this new way of adjudicating line calls works for the US Open, where next with it, James? The French is next Grand Slam after the US, thanks to the rejigged schedule. Mm. Um, but they, being on clay, don't use line calling to officiate. No, no, because the, the chair umpire can really just see where the ball has landed, yeah, on the clay. That That's correct. So the Aussie Open would be the next Grand Slam and discussions are being had as to the direction that Tennis Australia wishes to go there. All right. Well, we will wait and see. James Jafford is the Managing Director of Hawkeye in North America. Thank you for joining us here on Sporty. No, thank you, Amanda. Ah, So was that a real-life human line judge making a call or an electronic simulation? Amanda Smith with you. And after 10 long weeks, we're coming to the end of the Sporty Fitness Challenge. Congratulations to all of you who've been having a go. By midnight this Tuesday, the 1st of September, you need to have submitted your final account of what you set as your personal goal to increase your physical activity and how you've gone with it by email to sporty at abc.net.au. It can be a written account or a voice memo or photos, or video. Some of you have already got very creative with your entries. It's marvellous. But you just need to get something in, in whatever form suits you best. The judges will be awarding gold, silver, and bronze medals for the most interesting, appealing, perhaps moving, perhaps funny accounts. And the overall winner will also receive a $200 sports store gift card. And just as Pierre de Coubertin said that the most important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win but to take part, just as the most important thing in life is not the triumph but the struggle, all of you who enter the Sporty Fitness Challenge will receive a certificate honouring your part. And just to mention what some of the more unusual things that some of you have been doing for the challenge... Michelle has been what she calls waraging. That's a combination of walking and foraging for plants. Today I did a four-hour round trip from Marrickville along the Cooks River and collected fallen casuarina seeds and leaves, fallen paper bark and some succulent material, not from people's gardens. The aim is to walk for about 12 hours a week and create another 10 potted gardens. Guy says... In an effort to promote his new line of exercise equipment, Arthur Jones conducted the now infamous Colorado experiment in 1973. Arthur believed a trainee could gain more muscle, not only using his machine, but working far less often with more intensity. For the Sporty Challenge, I've decided to conduct my own experiment with Arthur's methods, which I will label after our property, cooler bar experiment to see if training harder but less frequently will provide me with the same gains I had when training more often. With my age now, 43, I think this type of system will be more in line with my recovery ability. 
Judy is doing the five basic exercises developed by the Royal Canadian Air Force that Prince Philip has been doing since he was 19, and his uniforms still fit to this day, Judy says. Now, I know that some of you on the Sporty Fitness Challenge are dancing your way through it, various forms of dancing, and on this final leg of the challenge, I'm going back to something I did a little bit of as a teenager, and that's tap dancing. Miss Lulu has been a tap dance teacher for more than 30 years, especially teaching adults. Lulu, what are the health and fitness benefits of tap dancing? Well, it's fun, so you get happy and that's good for your brain. Um, well, there's a lot to do with your brain because you can't think of anything else but what your feet have to do and you concentrate so hard that all your worries leave you and you have to just concentrate on tap dancing. And it is very physical because you get really hot and you can burn about 350 calories in a, a class. Um, when we are tapping for an hour, everybody walks out dripping. <laughs> you know, they're really tired and and they feel elated too because, you know, you've got all the endorphins going and the music makes you feel great. The sound from your feet makes you feel great. So it's kind of like a physical and an emotional high. <laughs> Well, uh, I have done some tap dancing before, a while ago, but what are the basics? Take, take me through them. Well, as I said, we have to get our brains down to our feet. Yeah, this is what I'm worried about. I think my brain and my feet may have disconnected. <laughs> well, sometimes people find it in the first class, they're just kind of like, whoa, like, how do I get down there? But because we don't do much with our feet, some people might kick a football, but, you know... You don't do much with your feet apart from walk. Um, so what I try and do is start off with just changing, stepping from one foot to the other and changing your weight onto each foot as you step. And then we, we might add a heel beat. And so then you'd step onto your toe and then you would drop your heel. But as you drop your heel, you want to take your other foot off the floor so that makes you transfer your weight onto that front foot that you're stepping onto. Good. <laughs> so we, we might do a couple of laps of that and get the rhythm because most of it is rhythm. <laughs> um, and then we might get a little brush in there and we'd brush your toe forward. So then you can add a heel beat to that. Then we would go into a glide, which is very glamorous. And once you start <laughs> doing glides, you really feel like you're tap dancing. Um, I think a lot of people know what a step ball change is if they've done, say, aerobics even, or um, where you're stepping, it's three beats, it's a forward beat, a back beat, and a forward beat, then you swap feet. Step ball change. And we would add, the, add that brush to that. So it would be brush, step ball change, brush, step ball change. Then you can skip it along. Da -dum. Da -da, da -da, da -da. You're dancing. Yeah, all right. Now, um, I have got tap shoes. They're very ancient ones that I got secondhand when I was a teenager. But um, I, I suppose you do have to have tap shoes if you're going to do this. 
Well, you know, you could start out in just some leather-soled shoes, but, I mean, once you hear that rhythm on the floor with those metal taps, it's great. You know, if you want to tap, you really want to make some noise. Does the sound of a big class of absolute beginners drive you crazy? (laughs) No. I mean, everyone's different, everyone learns differently. Say in a class of 10, you might have someone that learns through just visual by seeing me do the step. Some might need to know the actual rhythm of it. Some might need to know the terminology like toe, toe, heel, heel or something. Everybody just learns differently. So as I'm teaching, I make sure I let people know the rhythm of it, the actual words of the steps, and I physically show them. And each person will pick up how they learn with my instruction. So what's your teaching philosophy, Lulu, especially with adults? I think anyone can tap. If you just, you know, keep it fun and you actually learn better because you're relaxed and the information goes in, you can see straight away when someone's feeling like they're worried they can't get that step and the person next to them has already got the step and you can see them tense up, but, you know, the person next to them might not get the next step. So I'm always saying, encouraging and saying, it's okay. If you don't get it today, it might be two weeks. It might be next week. It doesn't matter. You will get it and I'll make sure you get it. (laughs) Without pressure or stress, we just try and relieve that from them. All right. Well, I've learned some basics. How about um, giving me something not too much harder, but a little bit more advanced to do? Sure. Let's start. Okay. So let's go like this. One, two, three, That's it. I'm a bit slow, but anyway. She's fantastic, everybody. No, no, no. (laughs) So we do. One and two and three. Change feet. One and two, three. Change feet. One, two, three, four. A one, a two. (laughs) Yeah, I'll vaguely get it. How do you make tapping so light? I mean, even though it's a noisy thing, when you tap, it's very light. When I tap, it's kind of heavy. Well, everyone has their own style. Some people have a heavier style anyway, so that's the way I dance. I think you have to just get used to your feet. Your feet will do what they want to do. Um, But the strength and the flexibility and just doing it will build up a good sound in your feet and your shoes. What's the hardest tap dancing step to master? You know, the one that when you can do it, you know you've really got somewhere. (laughs) Well, I mean, there's lots of new ones that have come out over the years, but I think some people find wings are difficult. Yes, Um, okay. Now, wings um, are something that I can't do. I've tried, but I can't do. And it's basically, well, how would you describe... Well, it's magic. <laughs> you, you suddenly just can do it. It's like you have to whisk your toes out. Both of them together. Sort of jumping into the air, whisking your legs, your, your feet out, and then whisking them in. But tapping on the way out yeah, and tapping on the way in. And it requires, it seems to me, enormous inner thigh strength. Yeah, strong legs and relaxed, kind of loose ankles too. 
You want to show me a wing or two? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> There's something to aspire to. Miss Lulu teaches tap dancing in her glittery tapping wonderland with the mission of making exercise through moving to music, fun and, may I say, stylish. Miss Lulu, thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, Should we try that with the music? Yeah, let's go. Yes, <laughs> I have to practice that a lot. <laughs> that was great. And that's me muddying the sound, galumphing along in tap shoes with a very encouraging and kind teacher. So don't forget to get your final account for the Sporty Fitness Challenge in by midnight this Tuesday, the 1st of September to sporty at abc.net.au. The program's produced by Damien Rabbit and I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.